You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 195 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This one is entitled, The Manichaean Temptation. In just a moment, we are going to be joining me for two of my commutes to work last week, in which over the course of those two drives, I did a Concepts and Theory sort of DHP episode that was mostly off the cuff, very little in the way of real structured notes or planning. So kind of stream of consciousness, kind of thinking out loud as I'm going. And this is a sort of episode where I'm driving and I'm speaking mostly extemporaneously about a topic or whatever that I did several of in the early days of the show, but I haven't done very many of in the past year or two that I can recall anyway. And I call these my silver bullet episodes because, of course, I'm driving in my 2014 Hyundai Accent hatchback in silver color. A car which, by the way, I got shortly after I started the DHP back in 2014. My most downloaded shows are always the big, multi-part, epic history narrative ones. You know, the American Revolution, the Civil War, now Woodrow Wilson, that sort of thing. And so those are always the ones that get the most downloads. And I know a lot of people, like, that's what they really want from me. And, you know, they don't like the other formats of shows I do as much. The more extemporaneous ones, the more laid-back ones, the movie reviews, the book discussions and reviews, sometimes even the guest interview spots that I have on the show, that sort of thing. But even though all those other types of shows don't get as many downloads as the big history narrative detailed episodes, still a lot of fans of the show like the other types of episodes as well. And personally, I like the variety. I actually like, in terms of other podcasts I listen to, I like podcasts that have a mixture of different formats, you know, sometimes solo, sometimes interviews, sometimes sort of structured, laid out solo episodes, sometimes sort of off the cuff, free flowing solo episodes. So for that reason, I mix it up. And also because if I only did things like the Civil War episodes or the Woodrow Wilson episodes, I'd be putting out a lot fewer episodes a year. And I'm not at Dan Carlin's level in terms of following, so I can't get away with that and still have this thing be a viable podcast. So anyway, if you're someone who only ever wants the detailed historical narrative episodes from me, then maybe this one isn't for you. But hopefully you'll find it thought-provoking. I know there are some fans I've heard of, including some longtime fans who've been listening to me almost from the very beginning, who actually really like these sorts of episodes. Because they're different and they enjoy this sort of free-flowing, informal, extemporaneous nature. So hopefully that's you. And if people really dig this episode, like I said, I haven't done an episode of this sort in a while, but if people really dig this episode, maybe I'll start doing more of these again. After all, I do have about a 45-minute commute to work, so, you know, I'm sure I could come up with other topics to speak of extemporaneously as I drive through the country roads in North Florida. So anyway, this one is just something that's been bouncing around in my head for a while that I've been thinking about doing some sort of episode on, and it's been amped up for a variety of reasons in recent weeks, this topic bouncing around in my head of what I call the Manichaean temptation. And so I decided it was the sort of thing I could talk at a fair length about extemporaneously, so it would be a good one to do to make some good use of that time driving to work. 
So without any further ado, let us go ahead and join me driving to work last week. Hello, hello, everybody. CJ here. Thank you for joining me in my morning commute to work. So, in this episode, I'm going to be talking about what I think of and conceptualize and refer to as the Manichaean Temptation. And in my mind, this is a psychological tendency that is innate to human beings. We all kind of have it to some degree or another in us as a tendency. And it's a tendency that can lead to some messed up ways of thinking and viewing the world and in some messed up behaviors and in some psychological issues and a variety of other problems. If overindulged and not sufficiently checked and kind of kept in its proper place, it's one of those many psychological tendencies that arose during our evolutionary history, or prehistory as it were, because it served a useful purpose. But like so many of our tendencies, many of which are at the root of kind of being a tribal primate as we are, like so many of those tendencies, they have become maladaptive in our modern, sophisticated, complex, high-tech world. So I guess I better stop burying the lead and start talking about what I mean by the term Manichaean temptation. So the origins of the term Manichaean go back to a man named Mani, M-A-N-I, who was a Persian who lived in the 3rd century, so think 200s A.D., in a part of the world that today we think of as Iraq, geographically. And he founded a religion, which is known as Manichaeism, from which we get derivatives like Manichaean. And his religion had a very brief, in historical time, run of being significant. It sort of popped up in between the early days of Christianity and the advent of Islam. And, you know, for a few centuries it was a thing. It was a going concern. But ultimately, it was completely overshadowed by Christianity in the West, and in the Middle East and Asia, its influence was ultimately overshadowed and overtaken by Islam, of course. However, even though Manichaeism itself, as an organized religion, didn't stick around as a big going concern for too long, never becoming remotely as widespread as bigger religions like Christianity or Islam, or further East Buddhism. Nonetheless, a lot of its kind of overall concepts and attitudes and worldview can be found echoed or paralleled in other religions. So it's one of these religions, and we could identify others as well in history, that itself didn't endure as a major religion for terribly long, but some of whose ideas 
seem to have filtered into other religions. Now, Manichaeism as a religion is an interesting topic. It's not very well known to most people today, and it may very well be an interesting object of study in its own right, but the point of this episode is not to get into the history and theology of the actual religion in detail, but rather to look at the mindset that gets known as the Manichaean worldview and what I'm calling the Manichaean temptation. To look at the way that the overall paradigm or worldview seems to be instinctive to most people, whether they're raised in a conventionally Manichaean thinking religion or not, and how this Manichaean tendency can be rather warping and rather dangerous, especially when it is skillfully exploited by people and institutions claiming authority. One of the key defining features of Manichaeism is a dualistic or black-and-white view of the world. In the Manichaean religion, this is referred to as light and darkness, good and evil. Now, this idea seems not to have originated entirely in this part of the world with Mani, but in fact seems to have come originally from Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism is another one of these lesser-known but highly influential and very interesting religions. It's very fascinating, but again, my point here is not to dig into it because A, my knowledge of that religion, at least as of this recording, is pretty superficial, and B, this isn't a rabbit hole I want to get sucked down today. So what I mean by the Manichaean temptation is our tendency to sort the world into black and white, good and evil, us and them, without any other gradations or categories or anything like that. It's very simplistic. You're either my friend and ally or you're my absolute enemy. You're either good or you're evil. Right the way the Sith deal with the world. If you're not with me, you're my enemy. Or as George W. Bush put it, if you're not with us, you are with the terrorists. That's the Manichaean temptation. And we're all susceptible to it, no matter what particular tribe and political or religious or other terms we adhere to. We're all susceptible to a Manichaean worldview and Manichaean thinking. And if you've ever listened to much of Jordan Peterson, you may have heard Jordan Peterson talk about how, in terms of how our brains function, we see objects in the world, human beings see objects in the world, not in some sort of like neutral or objective way, but we tend to see objects as either tools to help us do something or achieve a goal, or as obstacles that are in the way of us doing something or achieving a goal that we need to deal with or defeat or get around or whatever. And very often in our view of the world, we actually in a way don't see objects that we can't easily put into either category of either, you know, tool, thing that will help us, thing that we desire, thing that either we want to get or that will help us get what we want to get, or thing that is in the way of that that we need to defeat or go around or whatever, right? So Peterson's saying that, like, you know, the the psychiatric and neurological literature indicates that's how human beings actually see the world, which is kind of interesting, right? Because you don't notice things a lot of the time. As you're walking around, you, you only actually notice a tiny fraction of all the things that are around you and things that you could potentially see. 
and you're only focusing on little bits at a time. And most of the time, whatever it is you're focusing on is going to fall into one of those two categories, either something that is an asset to you in some way or something that is an obstacle to you in some way to what you're trying to do. And I think the Manichaean worldview, in part, is when you start to apply that to your fellow human beings and you start to only see people as either being your friend, your ally, or your enemy, your opponent. And to not be willing to have other categories or other gradations, but instead to simply shoehorn people that you encounter and deal with or watch or, you know, look at the, what they do online or on social media and shoehorn them into either friend or enemy. Now, this is a heuristic, I think. A heuristic in the sense of it's kind of like a mental shortcut. We can't really spend lots of time and energy analyzing every single person we observe or come across or see online or whatever and trying to create an absolutely unique, one-of-a-kind label or category for that person. So the Manichaean temptation performs a function of a heuristic, a shortcut. But I think it's a dangerous one. And what I think is particularly dangerous about it, well, there's a number of things, but ultimately... A lot of its dangers derive from the fact that it can give you a false map of reality. Now, all of our mental maps of reality are false in some way, or at least inadequate to all of the complexities of reality. We need heuristics to function. We need maps of reality to function. And the map is never the territory. Even the most detailed map can never quite encompass all of the complexities of a territory that it's depicting. A map is always, to some degree, a shortcut. It always has to leave some things out. But you have to remember that the map isn't the territory and understand that it has to leave some things out or oversimplify some things. And when you allow yourself to have a map of reality that is too based on the Manichaean view, and when you start to get lost in your own map and think that your map is the territory, then the map will become even less accurate and even more oversimplistic and lacking in nuance and subtlety and detail and complexity. So if you let the Manichaean temptation in your own psychology and the construction of your maps of reality just build and metastasize unchecked, If you never take a moment to remind yourself that these are heuristics, that these are tendencies to shortcut all of the complexity of reality, if you don't occasionally stop to remind yourself that the world is more complicated than a simple black-and-white Manichaean us-versus-them categorization when it comes to your fellow human beings, it can lead you to very dark places. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, Anxiety, depression, paranoia, dogmatism, and even such extreme things as scapegoating, witch hunting, and endorsing, or even in very extreme cases, committing atrocities based on the Manichaean worldview and sometimes related justifications like lesser evil and so forth, where you're doing something you would normally see as evil, but you're doing it against 
in some way those you define as your enemies. Because if you overindulge and get lost in the Manichaean temptation, you're likely to end up in a place mentally where you feel that you are constantly under siege by massive amounts of enemies who are all against you, perhaps even united in a conspiracy against you, even if that's not actually really what's going on. So this then leads to all these psychological problems, and then those can manifest in all kinds of bad actions. And the more this goes on, the more it becomes chronic, the more it may lead you to a bad psychological place as your status quo. Now, I want to take a few minutes here and just talk a little bit about ends and means. Now, your ends are the goals you wish to bring about. And your means are the method or methods which you ultimately decide to use or endorse to try to achieve those. Mainstream discourse today, in my observation and experience, seems to mostly fixate on ends, and rarely, if ever, talk about means, other than sometimes to conflate them with ends in ways that are deceptive. For the most part, I think mainstream discourse just wants you to think about ends. That way, you'll just uncritically accept whatever means that mainstream institutions, including the state, trot out as the means that they're going to use to pursue their ends. And the idea is basically that if someone's ends sound good, if it's about bringing about justice or making a better world or making a utopia or whatever other nice stuff they say are their ends, you fixate on that and you don't critically engage with the question of means. With the question of, okay, we really need to have a detailed and complex discussion even if we agree on ends, which itself is kind of problematic because oftentimes they'll use words that are potentially open to many different interpretations and highly subjective, right? Just give you one example, justice. What does that actually mean? They almost never attempt to define it. And very often they deliberately will manipulate it and use justice to mean different things in different contexts in order to get you to endorse justice in one area where perhaps you think it is good and reasonable, and then apply it to another area where if you took a step back and looked at it, you'd say, whoa, 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 this isn't justice here, right? But anyway, even setting aside the question of they like to use ends that are rather vague and ill-defined and easily manipulable, even even setting that aside, you still have the question of means, the question of whatever means are being employed or suggested or whatever, Are those means, A, in a practical sense, likely to bring about the ends that are defined, if they're defined at all? And then B, are those means, in and of themselves, morally good, or at the very least, morally neutral? Or are the means going to harm or aggress upon people who you don't really believe should be harmed or aggressed upon. In other words, you may have some well-defined utopia, but if getting there requires you to slaughter millions of people who haven't really done anything wrong and aren't really trying to hurt you or aggress upon you, 
then are those means justified, even if you really are sold on the ends for which they're being pursued, and even if you've been persuaded that those means, in a practical sense, might bring about the ends? Which, I I would think you're probably mistaken if, for example, you think slaughtering millions of people will lead to utopia. I would say that you're probably mistaken about those means being likely to bring about those ends. But even if you're convinced that those means, in a practical sense, may bring about those ends, you still have to deal with the question, you have to wrestle and grapple with the question of, but are those means, in and of themselves, so morally atrocious that you're not willing to endorse them, even if you believe they are likely to succeed in bringing about ends that you desire. So what all does this have to do with the concept of the Manichaean temptation? Well, if you drink of the Manichaean Kool-Aid too heavily and don't check yourself, you're likely to end up as an extremist. Now... I'm going to do something they don't often do in discourse. I'm going to use a word like that and actually define what I mean by it in this context. Because I actually don't like extremists. Now, you might be wondering at this point in time, what the hell? CJ, aren't you a radical? Aren't you an extremist? Why, you're an anarchist. In modern-day America, and pretty much in all the world, that's an extreme point of view. You are an extremist. Well, here's what I mean. My ends, in terms of political ideology, are extreme. Now, extreme is a subjective term. It's always relative to what, right? Because if I lived in a society where most people were anarchists, my views would actually be quite moderate and mainstream. But since I live in a time and place where that is not the case, my views are extreme relative to the mainstream norms around me. Fine. But I don't mean, in this instance, extremist based on ends that you believe are good and desirable. I mean extremist based on the means. I generally tend to mean the term, when I'm using it in a derogatory sense, extremist, primarily defining it by means, not by ends. In other words, I think you may fairly say that I hold an extreme view on politics that being anarchism, because it is extreme relative to current mainstream thinking, which, by the way, I would point out, is not necessarily a bad thing. For example, if you were an abolitionist, right, opposed to slavery in the year 1700, you were quite the extremist. And yet most of us today would look back on you and say, yeah, but you were right. And it just took a while for mainstream opinion to catch up with it. So, I may believe in certain ends that mainstream society around me at this time and place would define as extreme. But I actually don't endorse what I would consider as extreme means to bring those ends about. What do I mean? I'm an anarchist who is not on board with blowing people up or assassinating people under most circumstances. Like those, you know, late 19th, early 20th century anarchists who wanted to blow stuff up and assassinate people all the time. I think that those means, in most cases, A, are unlikely to bring about the ends of anarchism, and B, in many cases, probably even most, other than very specific defined circumstances where you might be targeting a particular person or institution that is really, really dangerous in the short run, 
those means are, other than in those sorts of circumstances, those means are morally so messed up that the ends don't justify them. So the way I generally think of extremists or zealots or true believers, right, as, you know, dangerous people who often commit atrocities in the name of nice-sounding ideals, I define it primarily based on your means, not your ends. Whatever your ends are, are you willing to endorse means that a reasonable, decent person who's not drinking your particular brand of Kool-Aid would find atrocious and horrific? Are you willing to, to endorse slaughtering people and prison camps and whatever in the pursuit of utopia? Or even in the pursuit of something that doesn't seem like, like a utopia, that seems like a much more kind of down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts endgame? Here's an interesting point to consider. People who hold moderate ends relative to their mainstream society, moderate views in terms of the ends they wish to bring about, have for the most part been the people who have built and run the American empire over the last, you know, couple hundred years, and in a big way over the past 130 years. The American empire has slaughtered millions of people, from the Native Americans to the Filipinos to various people in Europe and Asia during the World Wars, to people in Vietnam, to people in Korea, to people I'm you name it, to the Middle East, and many, many other places. And all these large and small wars, banana wars, proxy wars of the Cold War, all these sorts of things, you add it up. And even if you take out the people who were like legit combatants fighting on the other side, and just look at the civilians, the non-combatants who have died as a result of the American Empire around the world over the last, say, 130 years, it is millions and millions of people. Those are extreme means, right? Dropping napalm and Agent Orange all over Vietnam are extreme means. And yet, in terms of being defined by their ends, most of the leaders and bureaucrats and so forth that presided over all this were quite moderate, defined by their ends. They were basically center-left and center-right people. They were not way out on the spectrum on either side, for the most part. Again, defined relative to what was mainstream political thought in their society during their time. These are centrists. These are moderates. Defined by ends. Defined by means, if you're standing outside of their belief system, where this is all makes sense and is justified, just looking at it as objectively as is possible, as a reasonable, decent human being, not a sociopath, you would have to say that these are extreme means. And then even if you believe that American world hegemony is a good thing, that if you're a halfway decent human being, you have to at least have serious questions about these means. The means used in Vietnam. The means used in the Middle East. The means used in the A-bombings and firebombings in World War II. Are these means just? And I would argue that the Manichaean temptation is a huge part of the psychological scaffolding and pathways that led those moderates, in terms of, again, moderate defined by their ends, to be extremists in terms of the means that they're willing to endorse.
that once you have it in your head that everybody who's not on my team actively working with me for my ends must by definition be my enemy, then it's a very slippery slope until you're endorsing firebombing civilians in a country whose government you're at war with. And you're saying, yes, those women and children and elderly people in Hiroshima deserve to be nuked because of the bad things that, quote-unquote, their government had done. I don't think you can make that psychological leap without Manichaeism being a big part of how you're defining the world. Well, anyway, I'm almost at work, so I'm going to go ahead and stop it there. And uh, perhaps I'll pick up on this either this afternoon or else, if not, maybe on my way to work tomorrow morning. It'll be seamless to you, but to me it'll either be later today or even tomorrow. So, catch you in a few. Alright, so I am back. Magically, we have, in my life, jumped like 20 hours, 22 hours, something like that, into the future! But for you, it's literally seconds. So, I wasn't able to record on my drive home from work yesterday afternoon... Because, as usually happens on days when I'm teaching all day, by the end of the day I'm pretty hoarse. This is actually why I generally don't record anything unless it's, you know, being a guest on someone else's podcast and I have no other time to schedule it. I generally try to avoid recording anything on afternoons or evenings on days when I've taught all day. The only exception is I'll record stuff... Sometimes on Friday afternoons, because Friday afternoons I only teach one class and I get out of work earlier than Monday through Thursday. But anyway, side tangent. So, of course, yesterday, as usual, by the time I was done with work, my voice was pretty pretty hoarse and I didn't want to push it anymore and all that. Yet another reason why, if you want more and better DHP all the time, you should, if you're not already, become a supporting listener in some fashion, because if I can... Free myself of the day job, man, could I do a lot more podcasting eight ways from Sunday. So anyway, since this is the next morning, what I said yesterday is not 100% fresh in my mind. I did not have time yesterday to start editing and re-listening to what I recorded yesterday. So I hope you'll indulge me and forgive me and cut me some slack if I'm a little bit repetitive in this second half of some of what I said in the first half. Because, again, I've got, like, minimal notes, because obviously I'm driving, so I literally have, like, you know, a few little bullet points and things on a little piece of paper that I glance at every now and then. So, anyway, I'll try not to be too redundant with what I've already said based off my recollection. So, I wanted to, first off, talk about part of the reason why following the Manichaean temptation too far down tends to lead to, at the very least, negative psychological states for you, and potentially, especially if you're a person who has some sort of power or something like that, or or significant influence, can lead to dark, real-world results for others, including even sometimes innocent victims. Right, because I mentioned, I think yesterday, these are a few of the things on the bullet points that I have jotted down to kind of spark my solo discussion with myself and somewhat keep me on track 
Side effects of overindulging the Manichaean temptation may include but not be limited to anxiety, depression, paranoia, dogmatism, scapegoating, and witch hunting, among other things. Now, how does this happen? Well, it has to do with a particular way some people tend to overindulge in the Manichaean temptation. Now, there's two errors in terms of your evaluation of reality that tend to flow from overindulging the Manichaean temptation. And sometimes people do both of them at once, and they both can have negative consequences, but one has more potential negative consequences than the other. Now, the one with, I think, some but less possibility for, like, real serious negative consequences is... And and this all comes from the fact that when you overdo it on the Manichaean temptation and seeing the world through that lens of pure black and white, pure good and evil, you're either my friend and I love you and all that, or you're my enemy and I hate you. A lot of the faulty map of reality that comes about is you immediately start shoehorning people into those two categories of either friend or enemy, love you or hate you. And and the truth of the matter is that reality is far more complex and nuanced and all that than the Manichaean worldview. And truth be told, at any given time, most of the people around you, literally or metaphorically, are neither pure good nor pure evil. They are neither your great friend who you have mutual love with or your hatred enemy who you have mutual hatred with. The vast majority of people at any given time fall outside either of those two extremes. And so... You're shoehorning people in. Once you start sorting them into the Manichaean worldview, you're shoehorning people into categories that they don't belong in. Now, what are the the potential problems here? A lot of it comes down to you're identifying people as your friends and allies who maybe aren't really your friends and allies. And you're identifying people as your hated enemies who maybe are not your hated enemies. They're not really your enemies. Not really. I mean, they may disagree with you on some things or whatever, but, like, they're not really your enemies, quote-unquote. Now, the less dangerous and damaging error is the one where you see people as your friends who aren't really your friends. You see people as your allies, your teammates, who really aren't. Now, this can cause problems. It can cause you to get burned. It can cause you to get betrayed, even though maybe you're not even really being betrayed. It's just you misperceive someone as your ally who really wasn't ever your ally, and you just thought that, you just perceived it that way because of the Manichaean warpage of your map of reality. And this can lead to various negative side effects. It can lead you to becoming an apologist for people and groups and institutions and sometimes even actions that normally, if everything was left alone and not warped by the Manichaean view you would immediately see are things you should not be endorsing, supporting, or being an apologist for. Like, how about, for example, and this is tying into current events at this recording, so if you're listening to this much later, this, you know, may be a dated reference, but, you know, we just had, this is January 2020, we just had Trump recently ratchet up the tensions between the U.S. and Iran by killing the Iranian general Soleimani, and some other things too, and there was a sort of back and forth tit for tat, and now it's kind of, now it's kind of paused, but the, the sources of the tensions haven't, haven't been addressed in any fundamental way, so it could spark back up any time. So who knows how it'll play out. 
But what was really interesting about that was in the aftermath of Trump amping up things against Iran, there were some Trump supporters who criticized him for being aggressive. You know, a good example of this is Tucker Carlson, who I'll give lots of credit to, went on TV immediately and denounced what Trump was doing by amping up the issues with Iran. But a heck of a lot of Trump supporters in all walks of life who had supported Trump in part because he was perceived as anti-interventionist, who wanted to end the Middle East wars and blah, blah, blah. And these are people who very often will support Trump when he talks about, because he rarely does anything substantive, but when he talks about ending a Middle East war, you know, getting out of Syria or whatever, these people will come to his defense and be an apologist for that, say, yeah, that's the right thing to do. These are stupid wars. We should get out of there. But then when Trump decides to, you know, attack Iran... A lot of them, again, not all of them, but a lot of them simply did apologetic gymnastics and started saying why that was good in this particular instance, right? So, you know, it's causing you, because you've identified this guy as the captain of your team, so to speak, now you're going to explain why something he does is good, even though it's something that goes against what you just said recently was the, the right thing, the wise thing to do, right? So, anyway... You start to become an apologist and an explainer awayer and a justifier of people and institutions and groups and actions that you really shouldn't be supporting or endorsing or apologizing for, being, a, being an apologist for. And that can cause problems. But I think the even more dangerous and darker fallacy of the Manichaean worldview is when you... And you could be doing both of these things simultaneously, misperceiving people as friends who are not your friends, supporting people you shouldn't be supporting, allying with people you shouldn't be allying with. And then the other side is, of course, the inverse of that, which is identifying as enemies people and perhaps even entire groups of people as enemies who aren't really your enemies. Okay, and this is where all the the scapegoating and witch hunting and all that comes in. Now, if you have power or influence of any sort, obviously this can have dark consequences. It can lead to you launching a genocide or happily going off to be a foot soldier in carrying out a genocide in ultra-extreme cases. It can cause you to be a cheerleader or an instigator of some form or another of witch hunting. And that's bad, obviously, if you're a reasonable, decent human being. But even if you're a person without any significant power and influence and you're just kind of like, you know, someone who's mindlessly voicing your support, but you have no real influence on things. You're just kind of like, yeah, rah, 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 let's go, you know, hunt those witches, whatever. And even if your support of this mindset has no immediate real-world consequences of actual people getting harmed, it still will tend to harm you psychologically. Because here's the thing. If you start down the path of thinking that anyone who's not 100% on your team is 100% your enemy. Well, guess what? Looking at the world or your country or even, you know, people around you that you interact with, both in real life and, say, on social media, as soon as you start down that path, really quickly it's going to be obvious that there's way more people that you're shoehorning into the category of enemy than not, right? Because there's way more people that are not 100% on board with you then there are people who are. What does this mean? 
it means that, you know, once you start sorting people into us and them, almost inevitably, unless you're wildly over-identifying people as us, almost inevitably, you're going to very quickly realize there's exponentially more thems than there are uses. And if you start to see everyone who's not in 100% lockstep agreement with you as an enemy, this is going to lead you to a mental understanding of the world in which you're extremely paranoid and you have this like under siege mentality. Now, again, not only this can, can this lead you to doing and endorsing terrible actions against people that harm them unjustifiably, it's also going to harm you in terms of your sanity and happiness. You're going to feel anxious. You may feel depressed. You may feel scared. You may feel like everything's going to shit, right? The end of the world is coming in extreme cases. All these sorts of things. These are not good chronic psychological states to be in. They harm you mentally and physically. They lead you to live an unhappy life unnecessarily. Now, there may be other reasons in your life for you to be unhappy, but, you know, it adds to that with basically imaginary boogeymen. And I see this all over the place, including some members of my own family. Some members of my own family are super hardcore right-wing political conservatives, and that's the mentality they have, the under siege, we're being overwhelmed, civilization is literally falling apart. And, you know, they, they would list off the usual suspects as the perpetrators of this who are, you know, infiltrating and hiding everywhere and seemingly in a grand conspiracy to overthrow civilization, right? Everything from the liberals to the left to the gay agenda to whatever it is, right? And I'm not saying that there are no negative aspects to any of these things, but the idea that there's like this grand secret handshake conspiracy that all these groups are in on and they're all coming for you and they're unstoppable and you're under siege. Man, if that's how you live and how you wake up in the morning perceiving the world, that's going to fuck you up. And those same relatives are also, for the most part, super hardcore conservative Catholics. And they link their political boogeyman witch-hunting mentality to their religious one. And it's really interesting to see how those two Manichaean worldviews of hard-right politics and reactionary Catholicism, they, they kind of clash at times and then, you know, coincide at times. Obviously, if you're talking about, like, social liberalism, the gay agenda, all this sort of thing, obviously, conservative Catholicism and conservative politics overlap. What's interesting is these same relatives, they'll kind of be allied with and very positive on, like, hard-right evangelical people and groups on political questions, right? Like, they're in lockstep with the Jerry Falwell-type people on being against the gay agenda, being against abortion, being against, you know, any kind of social liberalization, right? against legalizing drugs, all these sorts of things. They're totally in lockstep and will say nice things about these evangelical Protestants. And yet those same individuals that I'm talking about, if you steer the conversation more towards like theology and all these sorts of things, 
it doesn't take very long of questioning for these same relatives of mine to start denouncing all Protestants as heretics, basically. Like, they'll even, some of them, bash Martin Luther. Now, if you're, if you're not a Lutheran or a Catholic, and you're looking at Lutheranism and Catholicism from the outside, it's like, yeah, they've got some important differences. But, like, man, <laughs> Lutheranism and Catholicism, especially high church Lutheranism, is way closer, they're way closer to each other than either of them are to, like, virtually any other religion, including, you know, most other denominations of Christianity. And so it's just funny how it doesn't take them very long to identify all Protestants as enemies, too, and, like, start dredging up grievances from the 1500s. And so it shows you how it's kind of like, it doesn't even all make rational sense, right? Where it's like, in the political context, we love the hard-right evangelical Christians... And then as soon as we're in, like, pure religion theology questions, it's like, no, 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 they're the enemy. They're, you know, not even just, like, have a slightly different interpretation of Christianity. It's like, they're probably at least somewhat under the sway of the forces of darkness. And it just shows you, I mean, not only does that under-siege paranoid mentality make you crazy and potentially depressed and a very negative, pessimistic person who just has a miserable life... But it also can make you not even make sense if your Manichaean worldview is kind of a mixed bag of some of it's based on religion, some of it's based on politics, some of it's based on something else, right? You end up with these uh, contradictions that, you know, may not seem like it at first, but like I truly believe that the more unresolved contradictions you hold in your mind, the more it just kind of messes you up and prevents you from being... I'm not sure of the word. I don't mean to sound too new agey, but like a cohesive, unified, holistic person. You end up with this kind of fragmentary personality, the more contradictions that you just hold. Especially if those contradictions are not even conscious. It's one thing if you know, like, yeah, I know a couple of my stated beliefs kind of contradict each other or clash with each other or there's some tension. And I understand this and I, I kind of admit that that's the case, but hey, you know. I'm not sure how to resolve it. I, life's complicated, whatever, right? But if you've got all these contradicted knots in your beliefs and thoughts about the world that you're not even aware of consciously, that you just are pretending don't exist, I think that can't help but kind of, in a way, jumble up your personality, jumble up your psychology. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's, that's just my perception of it. I've certainly personally experienced a sense when I've resolved certain contradictions in my own beliefs and understandings about things, there is a degree to which I feel a sense of, like, relief and internal unity that wasn't there before. On the subject of religion and how religion plays into this, especially considering, you know, the whole Manichaean idea of sorting the world into light and darkness, good and evil, comes from religions. It comes from Mani, it comes from Zoroastrianism, and then it gets filtered into things like Christianity and Islam. And this is not intended to be an attack on any particular religious group or anything like this, more on a type. Right? Regardless of what specific faith or denomination you are, everybody knows within every faith there's a difference between the regular followers and adherents and the fundamentalists, the extremists across the board. 
And that if you follow the fundamentalism far enough in any religion, you end up in a place that basically anyone who's not a member of it would consider a cult. That there's at least the potential for cultism in any religion if it's made extremist fundamentalist enough. And that there's a variable amount within a particular religion of like what percentage of the people in that religion are at that level, right? Are at that level of fundamentalism so hardcore and extreme that any reasonable outsider would say, yeah, that's a cult. I don't think it's a constant percentage. I think there are some religions where the percentage who might reasonably be considered cultists are higher and somewhere it's much lower. And again, I'm not here to point fingers at particular denominations and whatever in this instance. That's not my point here. My point here in bringing this up is to say that the purveyors of hardcore fundamentalism of any religion, including those who go as far as shading off into cultism, a big part of what they're doing is using, playing on, exploiting the Manichaean temptation. The temptation of human beings to get into this method of thinking. Us versus them. Good versus evil. And later, when I'm at home and can actually like sit and, and read a big long quote or two, I might actually put some quotes regarding the way that cults play very heavily on black and white Manichaean type thinking to illustrate and explain this a little bit more from, from an expert on cults. Also, by the way, in the future, I might do an episode or who knows, even a miniseries, and again, you know, these things, it's always like, hey, it may take me years to get around to this, but I might do an episode or a miniseries on cults in general. Now, I'm not talking about doing, like, a detailed historical narrative of any particular cult or cults, so much as talking about, like, the principles of cults, like, what are they, how do they operate, how can they, you know, sometimes really go off the rails, what are they doing, how do they get people who, in some cases, are quite intelligent and educated and worldly drawn into them. And so I think that'd be an interesting thing to explore. Now, in that potential hypothetical, I would certainly talk about particular aspects and instances of particular cults historically to illustrate points, right, to illustrate phenomenon and you know, theories of what's going on and how this is working. But, like, it wouldn't be like, here's just a detailed narrative of Jonestown or whatever. But anyway, that's not coming up anytime soon. I'm just throwing that out there as a potential future thing. So anyway, if you make it through my rambling, driving discussion with myself about the Manichaean Temptation, at the end, there may be a little outro recorded at the home studio. All of a sudden, the audio will sound great and whatever where maybe I'll share with you a few quotes or something talking about the ways in which cults in particular play heavily on this whole thing. But you can also see ways in which the Manichaean temptation warps people in more mundane ways than cults and super hardcore extreme religious groups. Obviously, one of the clearest places you see it on display all the time is in regard to politics. And this manifests itself in a whole number of different ways. And you can see how a lot of this is just simply driven by tribalism. It's driven by most people 
have always more loyalty to tribe than to truth. And even when they escape a tribe that they were in, they have a tendency to just very quickly dive headfirst into an opposing tribe. And, you know, you could see this in many different ways. I'll give you an example. Oftentimes you'll see, and this is prevalent historically on the anti-war hard left, where they will oppose some American war, some military intervention abroad that's, you know, doing horrible things, wrecking a country, slaughtering innocent people, like all very valid things to be against. But they'll, instead of just stopping there, they'll become apologists for the other side, the people who are the opponents of the U.S. war someplace, right? So you see this, for example, with... And it's never all the anti-war people or even all the anti-war left, but it's enough that, like, it's an obvious phenomenon. Where, for example, during the Vietnam War, some percentage of the American anti-war left started to become not just anti-war, but actively pro-Vietnamese communist. Which, obviously, is something I'm not getting on board with. As, as much as I vehemently, retroactively oppose the Vietnam War, like, there's no way I'm going to start saying, like, Ho Chi Minh's a great guy and the Vietnamese communists are wonderful. I mean, they, they did horrible things. But it's this Manichaean temptation where it's like these people who grew up, probably most of them anyway, steeped in American nationalism and patriotism, and then they start to realize the reality that a lot of what the U.S. military is doing in places like Vietnam is horrific and unjustified, and they start to have quite reasonable feelings of, like, oh, this is wrong, we should be against it. And they're unable to just, like, leave it at that. Instead, they get drawn into, well, if the Americans are not the good guys, it must mean that the Vietnamese communists are good guys. More recently, you see this with some of the anti-war left in regard to the Maduro regime in Venezuela where, you know, they're opposing U.S. sanctions and any possible U.S. military action against Venezuela to overthrow Maduro, which I'm completely sympathetic to that point of view. I completely agree with that. That, like, U.S. intervention is only going to make everything worse for everybody in Venezuela. But some of the anti-war left then goes further and goes into being an apologist for the Maduro regime and for Chavez beforehand, and then tries to, like, make these into just great guys, great heroes, you know, who did nothing but wonderful things. It's like, no. All you're doing is you're leaving one tribe's Manichaean worldview and jumping into another. And you see this so many places. You see this in the libertarians who are Confederate apologists, right? It's like, they learn that Lincoln wasn't a great guy and did a lot of nasty things and all this sort of stuff, and that the Union's motivations weren't 100% what people think they were in fighting the war. Okay, all very valid. And then they can't just leave it at that. They turn into, oh, and by the way, the Confederates were basically great guys and they weren't motivated by, by defending slavery at all. It's like, no, 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 no. All you're doing is just creating a different Manichaean worldview from the other side. You're just saying, oh, I'm leaving the Lincoln's a hero and the Union were a bunch of principled abolitionists, which is fine to want to leave that tribe because I think that's not a valid tribe either. But then you're just immediately diving into the, co the cult of Confederate apologism, the cult of the lost cause, the cult of 
oh, the South didn't care about slavery at all, and all that nonsense, which is just false. And not only are you wrong, and your map of reality is incorrect, but next thing you know, you're aligning with people that you really maybe don't want to be aligning with. Because there's other people out there who are hardcore Confederate apologists and lost cause purveyors who are maybe not so libertarian on other issues. And, you know, maybe you don't want to be affiliated with them or identified with them or anything like that. You see the Manichaean temptation at play whenever there's a very controversial figure, whether it's a public figure, an intellectual, a celebrity, or if it's a politician. Just two examples that illustrate this that are around right now. One, simply more of a a celebrity intellectual, Jordan Peterson. Very polarizing for some reason. And for someone like me who tries to check his own internal Manichaean temptation, who tries to like not mindlessly be a member of any cult or tribe, I always end up in weird, awkward positions in regards to these sorts of figures, right? So on the one hand, you've got the Jordan Peterson cultists who just like love everything he says, say that he's right about everything, say that he's the greatest guy ever, just completely hang on his every word uncritically. He's the greatest guy ever. No criticism of him. And then there's the anti-Jordan Peterson cultists who are like, he's damn near a closet Nazi. He's like the worst reactionary ever, blah, blah, blah. He's a monster. And I'm looking at it going like, wait a minute. Neither of those things, if you actually spend a lot of time listening to what Jordan Peterson says and, you know, reading his book, which I did read his book when it first came out, all this sort of stuff, you actually look at what he says, it's like, I certainly think he gets lots of things wrong, particularly once he starts getting into the realm of politics and, you know, his discussion of competence hierarchies is fine when he's talking about the free market, right? When he's like, you know, the successful plumber is probably the guy who's a good plumber. I'm like, yeah, that's true. When you're talking about, you know, hierarchies that form spontaneously based on voluntary interactions probably a lot of its competence, right? Car company A makes better cars. Car company B makes crappy cars. More people buy from car company A. Car company A becomes bigger and more successful, right? Like, okay, I get it. But as soon as you start introducing coercion, namely the state, into the equation, I think the idea of competence hierarchy starts to break down. Because once things are no longer voluntary then competence is no longer the primary yardstick by which you're rising in these institutions, right? I mean, does anyone rationally want to say that more often than not, the people who win an election do so because they're more competent to run things? I mean, you could argue maybe they were more competent at campaigning, but that's not the same thing as being more competent at actually running things. So anyway, that's just one example of many that I would have of Jordan Peterson in terms of like, I think he's he makes a lot of valid points. The more he's in his wheelhouse, the more he's in the realm of, like, you know, psychology and Jungian archetypes and all these sorts of things and kind of self-help stuff, you know, because he was a, a therapist and all that. It's like, I think he's pretty good on all that stuff. And I've learned a lot from him. And I've, I think I've benefited from some of what he's had to say, including in psychological ways and sort of self-help type ways. 
And I think the idea, you know, that he's like some sort of closet racist or closet hardcore alt-right whatever is is silly. If you actually look at his politics, they're very moderate. Very moderate. He just doesn't go along with all the politically correct stuff, and there, therefore he gets characterized as this hard-right reactionary, but he's really not. So anyway, yeah, the, I, I just, I reject both of the polarized reactions of Jordan Peterson. I look at Jordan Peterson and his work in this very kind of nuanced way where it's like, I think a lot of the things he says are good and helpful and I agree with and I've benefited from. But at the same time, and I just, you know, used, used the whole, his part of his analysis of politics, but there's other things I could get into too. I certainly don't say that he's right about everything or anything like that or treat him as this like guru that I'm going to mindlessly just follow like a cult leader on everything. Right. Even though I think a lot of what he says, again, the more he's in his wheelhouse, the better I think he is. The more he's talking about Jungian psychology and self-help and improvement and all that, the better I think it is what he has to say. And then, of course, the other giant, even bigger elephant in the room, so to speak, when it comes to polarizing figures that people react wildly, extremely to is Donald Trump. Right. You've got the cult of Trump, which is that he's the messiah who actually has made America great again, and basically he's already solved all the problems that were created by Barack Hussein Obama. And he's just the greatest president ever. And he's saving Western civilization. And everything he does is brilliant 4D chess, right? That's the pro-Trump side. And then the anti-Trump side is, he's literally Hitler... And hands down, it's not even close, he's by far the worst president in American history. To me, both of those reactions to Donald Trump are so delusional and crazy that it's hard for me to even wrap my head around that otherwise sane and reasonable people would hold them. I mean, if you think Donald Trump is the worst president in American history, you don't know a damn thing about history. Because by any measure you want to use... No matter what your ideology is, you can easily find more than a few presidents that are worse than Donald Trump. I mean, if you're any type of a reasonable human being, just looking at damage to the world, Woodrow Wilson, it's not even close. I mean, if Trump is Hitler, he's like the most incompetent Hitler who's ever existed. Because if you look at like what Hitler was already doing after four years in power versus what Trump is doing after four years in power, it's like laughable what Trump has actually done compared to the giant amount of crazy things Hitler was already doing. But people don't live in reality. They live in their warped fantasy worldview. And again, the more the Manichaean temptation is followed and heeded, the more your worldview, your subjective experience of the world gets just warped and warped and warped. So, you know, to me, I look at Trump and I'm like, yeah, he's terrible. Like most presidents, especially most presidents of the last 20 years. Sorry, of the last 100 years. So he's pretty terrible. And I have a long list of things I would bash him with. But he's not the worst president in American history, at least so far. Now, if he starts a war with Iran or starts World War III or whatever, like, yeah, okay, fine. Then he'll win the prize, probably. But just on how he's handled it so far, it's like, a lot of it's pretty terrible, but we've had worse, including, by the way, in my lifetime. And I stand by my claim that the worst president of my lifetime, 
measured both by kind of like libertarianish ethics and ideology and also just measured by damage to the world and America. The worst president in my lifetime is not very close at all. George W. Bush. When you look at the damage he did to the United States, to the world, to the economy, just everything. He is the worst, and as horrible of things as Trump has done, so far nothing he's done has put him in George W. Bush's category as far as damage goes. And isn't it interesting that those same hardcore anti-Trump people now have nice things to say about George W. Bush, and many of them are the same individuals who, when George W. Bush was president, were saying he was literally Hitler and the worst president ever. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that show you that their Manichaean worldview has completely warped their reality? And it keeps warping it based on, you know, who holds office and who's the the head of the opponent party and all this sort of thing. So anyway, just in wrapping up, I'm at work now, so I'm going to wrap this up. I hope it hasn't been too rambling and incoherent. There's lots of traps that come from overindulging the Manichaean worldview. Overall, you get a faulty map of reality. You start to judge, something I didn't mention yet, but I want to mention right now as I'm wrapping up, you start to judge the right and wrong of things no longer on the basis of the action itself or even its consequences, but on the basis of the identity of the actor. And both the left and the right politically have their version of this sort of applying identity politics to morality, where it's like, if America bombs a bunch of civilians, well, it's fine. If someone we don't like bombs a bunch of civilians, it's pure evil, and that proves it, right? If Trump bombs another country, that's bad. If Obama bombs another country when he was in office, that's great. If Obama ends a war, brings the troops home, it's wonderful. Trump does it. It's the dumbest, worst thing ever, right? And, you know, you can flip all these things and illustrate the same point. So you start to judge the right and wrong of things no longer on the basis of the action or even its consequences, but on the basis of who's doing it. Your morality becomes identity dependent, which I don't think is a good thing. And again, you start to see people as your ally who are not your ally, your friend who are not your friend, and people as your enemy who are not your enemy. This has all kinds of negative real-world consequences, including causing you unnecessary psychological discomfort and even suffering. Again, including but not limited to anxiety, depression, paranoia, dogmatism, scapegoating, witch hunting, and also things like endorsing or even sometimes committing evil actions based on some sort of justification, which may include flavorings of the lesser evil argument and stuff too. So anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Other than, like I said, after I sign off here, there may be a little brief outro in which I share with you some quotations regarding how cults exploit this way of thinking. So Thanks for listening. I hope I haven't entirely wasted your time with this disjointed rambling and ranting off the cuff kind of episode. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Didn't find it too rambling all over the place or too redundant or repetitive within itself, you know, kind of internally. And just a few thoughts and things that I wanted to wrap up with. One that ties into the whole concept of zealots, fundamentalists, extremists, cults, that sort of thing is one of my favorite Churchill quotes, and I love a lot of Churchill quotes. I mean, the guy, historically, is pretty monstrous, but he had a wit and a way with words, and he could turn a phrase. So anyway, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. One of my favorite Churchill quotes. 
This is the person who will start talking religion and politics all the time, even in wildly inappropriate social situations, and even will continue talking about these things to people when it's clear they're not interested in discussing these topics with you back. And so that's another kind of extremist that I get annoyed with, even if they agree with me. It's like at some point, yeah, we can we can talk, you know, ideology and whatever, but at some point, like, there's the rest of life too. Like, you know, can we chat about anything else? I also wanted to say that um, something I haven't mentioned on the show, I don't think very much lately, but I did mention it quite a bit earlier on, is that I guess you could call me a Taoist, even though it's not really like an organization or religion that you officially join or get baptized into or have to go through a conversion process or you get a membership card or anything like that. But basically, I'm a fan of Taoist philosophy and thought, and it influences how I see the world and live my life. So I guess it would be fair to say that, among other things, I'm a Taoist. And one of the things I really like about Taoism that stands in contrast to all these religions that have a Manichaean element is that the way that Taoists deal with black and white in the literal and metaphorical sense is, of course, with the yin-yang symbol, which the idea is there is some black in the white and white in the black. There's light in the darkness and dark in the light, and that these two opposite things need each other, feed upon each other, and chase each other and create each other. And that's very different, I think, from the typical Manichaean-type religion, where it's very oppositional, there's no understanding that these things chase each other and contribute to each other and feed each other and need each other. And furthermore, that they have elements, one extreme has elements of itself in the other, and vice versa. So I just wanted to throw that in there briefly as something I meant to mention, but, you know, you're driving and talking and can't remember everything. And then the last thing, as promised, a little passage reading a quote. This comes from the book Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan, who is an expert on cults. And there's a section, I don't know, maybe halfway through the book with the heading, Reality is Black and White, Good versus Evil. This is where he's talking about the ways that destructive cults, you know, indoctrinate people, that sort of thing. And so we'll see how much the Manichaean idea is at work in the cult indoctrination process. Hassan writes, quote, Even the most complex cult doctrines ultimately reduce reality into two basic poles, black versus white, good versus evil, spiritual world versus physical world, us versus them. There is never room for pluralism. The doctrine allows no outside group to be recognized as valid, good, godly, real because that would threaten the cult's monopoly on truth. There is also no room for interpretation or deviation. If the doctrine doesn't provide an answer directly, then the member must ask a leader. If the leader doesn't have an answer, he can always brush off the question as unimportant or irrelevant. Pet devils vary from group to group. They can be political and economic institutions, communist, socialist, or capitalist, mental health professionals, psychiatrists, deprogrammers, or metaphysical entities such as Satan, spirits, UFO creatures, or just the cruel laws of nature. Devils are certain to take on the bodies of parents, friends, ex-members, reporters, and anyone else who is critical of the group. The quote-unquote huge conspiracies working to thwart the group are, of course, proof of its tremendous importance. End quote. And then jumping ahead a little bit where he talks about some other things that connect to this. 
Under the heading Elitist Mentality, Hassan writes, quote, Members are made to feel part of an elite core of mankind. This feeling of being special, of participating in the most important acts in human history with a vanguard of committed believers, is strong emotional glue to keep people sacrificing and working hard. As a community, they feel they have been chosen by God, history, or some other supernatural force to lead mankind out of darkness into a new age of enlightenment. Cult members have a great sense not only of mission, but of their special place in history. They will be recognized for their greatness for generations to come. Ironically, members of cults look down on anyone involved in any other cult groups. They are very quick to acknowledge that those people are in a cult, or they are the ones who are brainwashed. They are unable to step out of their own situations and look at themselves objectively. End quote. And then a little bit further down under the heading group will over individual will, talking about how all this is used to try to destroy your individuality. Hassan writes, quote, In all destructive cults, the self must submit to the group. The whole purpose must be the focus. The self-purpose must be subordinated. In any group that qualifies as a destructive cult, thinking of oneself or for oneself is wrong. The group comes first. Absolute obedience to superiors is one of the most universal themes in cults. Individuality is bad. Conformity is good. End quote. And again, the Manichaean temptation is a giant part of these methods of thought control. So again, I hope you've found this whole episode interesting and useful. And like I said, if it resonates with a lot of people, maybe I'll do some more along these lines. But thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level. And you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, 
you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. 